is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Brandon Feitelson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers University, and he's here to talk to us about reasoning fallacies. Brandon Feitelson, welcome. Thank you. So it's great to be here. So what are some of these reasoning fallacies that you're interested in? What would be an example of one? Okay, well, there's lots of reasoning fallacies in the contemporary psychological literature. There are ones involving deduction, you know, simple deductive rules where people tend to make mistakes. Uh, But today I'm going to focus instead on some very simple examples involving probability, involving induction. So these aren't deductive inferences. That is, uh, there aren't cases where you can, you know, infer with certainty a conclusion. Uh, They'll be probabilistic inferences. But they're relatively simple. And they're the kind of things that we do all the time. So the fact that we make certain kinds of systematic mistakes is a very important subject in psychology. In fact, Kahneman and Tversky, who are the people I'm going to talk about who discovered these fallacies, they won a Nobel Prize for this work, among other things, but they won a Nobel Prize in economics. So this stuff really has important ramifications. Let me start with probably the simpler of the two, the simpler of the two, which is sometimes known as the so-called base rate fallacy. It's called that because part of the story involves what are called base rates. So I'll give you just a simple, there are many examples of this, but a simple example would be, suppose you're considering whether you have some very, very rare disease. Pick your favorite rare disease. It could be some very rare genetic disease or some communicable disease, it doesn't really matter, but it has to be very, very rare in the population. And that means it has a low base rate. So that's where the word base rate comes from. So the base rate is sort of the, the background frequency with which it occurs in the population. Suppose that's really low. So pick your favorite very, very rare disease. There are many. It doesn't really matter which one. But let it be one for which we have a reliable diagnostic test. Okay, not perfectly reliable, but highly reliable. And suppose you don't know anything about whether you have the condition yet, and you go and get this test performed reliably, according to the usual protocol, and a positive test result comes back for the disease. So the question then is, how probable do you think it is that you have the disease, just based on this single reliable, but not perfectly reliable, test result. Most people would be inclined to say it's pretty probable. Maybe it's more probable than not. Maybe it's even highly probable that I have the disease. In fact, that answer is incorrect. And you know, you can look at detailed cases with specific numbers, but actually, that one, the details of this won't matter too much for our purposes. We can actually gloss over a lot of the details. But if we make the, the point is this, if we make the disease rare enough, then no matter how reliable the test is, as long as it's not perfectly reliable, a single test result is only going to raise the probability. It'll raise it in ratio a very large amount. It'll sort of magnify it, but still it'll come out in the end, the end of that process being still very small, certainly less than a half. And this kind of mistake is made very commonly, not just among ordinary people, 
but these experiments involving specific numbers, so you know, we can instantiate this, you can imagine this instantiate with specific diseases in specific populations. And not only do ordinary people get this reasoning wrong, but experts, epidemiologists, doctors, this is a very robust phenomenon where people overestimate the probability of a rare disease, on the, at least on the basis of just a single test result. Now, of course, if you had many positive tests in a row, then of course the probability is going to get very, very high that you have a disease. But we're just talking about a single test result. It's a one shot. And experts, ordinary people alike, radically tend to overestimate this probability. Okay. Now, there's a there are technical names for things here. They aren't super important, but you'll hear things like Bayes' theorem or various theorems of probability theory thrown around in this literature. And so people will say this is a counterexample to people's ability to use Bayes' theorem, which is just a way of calculating that conditional probability based on this rare background probability, the base rate, together with the reliability of the test, putting those information together to get the final probability. And there's a technical way of doing that called Bayes' theorem. Details don't matter. People aren't very good at applying Bayes' theorem. <laughs> this, is, this is the upshot of this kind of experiment. One interesting thing, though, that uh, happens, in the, especially in this case, is that it depends very sensibly on how you present the information to subjects. If you present them with just numbers, the probability of this is that, the reliability is this number, and then you ask them to you know, implicitly calculate this conditional probability, which requires essentially doing Bayes' theorem, people aren't very good at that. But if instead you just give them frequencies, you say, look, there's a thousand people in the population, maybe 10 of them have this disease, and then you give them sort of frequency data on how reliable the test is, people are a lot better at figuring out what that probability should be when they're just given frequency information rather than just pro numerical probabilities. So this is typical in psychology where how people perform is going to depend to some extent on how the information is presented. But even if you present it in the most natural, simplest way, still people generally overestimate this probability. And so they're still not doing the right thing according to this theory of probability anyway, assuming that's a norm. Now we can talk about that. I actually have serious doubts about whether it ought to be considered a norm, but we can, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But we're just supposing that classical probability theory is a norm for these judgments. If it is, then people are clearly making a mistake. Now, that case, the base rate case, is rather complicated. You have to be given information about the base rate, you have to be given numerical information about these reliabilities, and then you have to put them together. And that's a non-trivial calculation to actually do it according to any theory. So that one's pretty complicated, and you might just think, well, there's a lot of complexity underlying that, and maybe that's one of the reasons people you know, are screwing it up. And so what Kahneman-Tversky did was they came up with lots of other examples of very basic principles of probabilistic reasoning that are much simpler that people mess up. Uh, so maybe I'll go into that one. And that one's actually simpler to talk about. The case that I'm going to talk about next, which is simpler and I think really is a problem for subjects here. It, there really is a mistake being made here, and it's rather clear that there is. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a little story about a woman named Linda. Okay? And after I tell you that story, I'm going to pose two hypotheses about Linda, and then I'm going to ask you which of those hypotheses is more likely, given the story I told you, taking that as evidence about Linda. So here's a very simple story. Call this evidence E. Linda is 31, single, and outspoken and very bright. She majored in philosophy in Berkeley in the late 60s. Uh, as a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and she also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. So that's a little story about Linda. Call that E, that whole story. 
That's the evidence about Linda. Now, consider two hypotheses about Linda. Now, flashing forward, say, 20 years. And now I give you two hypotheses about Linda 20 years later. Hypothesis one, she's a bank teller. Hypothesis two, she's a feminist bank teller. Which hypothesis do you think is more likely, given the evidence, given the story I told you about Linda? Is it more likely that she's a feminist bank teller or more likely that she's a bank teller? Well, I'll ask Jamie in a moment, but it um, seems to me it's probably more likely that she's a feminist bank teller. Uh, what, what do you think, Jamie? I have to confess that I've read the presentation on this ahead of time, so I... Yeah, he knows the answer. Um, well, most people say, and this again is a very robust phenomenon, most people are inclined to say that the feminist bank teller hypothesis is more probable, as you said, Matt, than the bank teller hypothesis. Now, that is a really unfortunate answer because you have to first ask, is it even conceptually possible for the feminist bank teller hypothesis to be more probable than the bank teller hypothesis? And the answer is no. And that's because the feminist bank teller hypothesis entails the bank teller hypothesis. Feminist bank teller just has bank teller as like a conjunct. So bank teller just follows. So think of how many possible worlds uh, this is one way to think about probability. Think about the number of possible worlds or the proportion of possible worlds in which the feminist bank teller hypothesis is true. Well, of course, in every one of those worlds is a world in which Linda's a bank teller. So there can't be any more worlds in which she's a feminist bank teller than in which she's a bank teller. I mean, it's just a subset, right? Well, subsets are smaller, and smaller sets of worlds are less probable. So feminist bank teller has to be less probable. This is, a very, this is one way of giving the argument, but there's actually, it turns out there's something I've recently discovered as part of some research that I'll be presenting tomorrow, but I've recently discovered that there's a much more fundamental justification for this principle that if P entails Q, then P can't be more probable than Q, unconditionally or conditionally, it doesn't matter what you know, none of that stuff's real. In no sense can something logically stronger be more probable than something logically weaker. And what I mean by that is, it's really a strong rational requirement that you don't have that judgment. And if you do have that judgment, then what you can actually show is there's an alternative set of judgments that is actually closer to the truth in every possible world in a, in a very precise sense that you can define. So this principle is, I would say, one of the very few sacrosanct principles of inductive reasoning. I think many of the principles that classical probability theory endorses are not sacrosanct. They're controversial, and it's not obvious that they're requirements of rationality. This one, I think there's a really strong argument that it is. So I think Kotlin-Tversky really discovered something important here, a very basic principle of inductive reasoning that a lot of people violate. So how frequently do people violate this feminist bank teller inference mistake? It's very common. I mean, you get, depending on the population, you get um, a supermajority it's usually a supermajority. So it's two-thirds or three-fourths of the people. And that's a pretty robust frequency across many different populations. It's very, very robust. And this is one of the things they won the Nobel Prize for. I mean, this is, I think this is a really great example because it's so simple and because it's such a fundamental principle of logic, probability, and just rationality, as I said, because I think it can be given pretty much an airtight rationale in terms of the judgments you make. You shouldn't make a judgment like this. So I think this is really, really a cool thing that they discovered. and. Well, let me say a few things about what you might say in response. So there have been, of course, there was a huge literature. This came out in the early 80s, and then there's been a huge literature since then. 
And of course, there are various things you think of immediately that you might try as responses. So here's something you might try immediately as a response, which people did try. You might say, well, look, when you ask people bank teller versus feminist bank teller, they're not really hearing bank teller in such a way that it follows from feminist bank teller. Here's what they're hearing. They're hearing feminist bank teller versus non-feminist bank teller. Okay, then there's no logical entailment relation between them, and so then the, this result doesn't apply, and it's not a violation of the norm, right? That's a very plausible idea. Turns out that doesn't work. <laughs> that explanation doesn't help. You know, throughout the 90s, a lot of experiments were performed in which people were asked to place bets on bank teller versus feminist bank teller, but before they made bets on which they bet more money on, given the story, they were asked to do logical deductions from feminist bank teller to bank teller, and they universally recognized. So the way they do this is people would do the, it's like a conjunction elimination, right? You know, P and Q, therefore Q. Oh, but by the way, I bet more money on P and Q. Okay, so this hypothesis that you can get away with some kind of pragmatic, um, mutually exclusive trick by making the two hypotheses mutually exclusive or incompatible. That doesn't work because you can do experiments where people do a deduction so they know it's a conjunct and they bet more money on the conjunction anyway. And betting is, you know, betting really is tied to the way you judge probabilities. I mean, this is a lot of psychological literature on this over the years, but it's very hard to explain why people would just in the same kind of frequencies bet more unless they thought it was more probable. Okay. And so that's after they do deductions. So this idea that you can do some trick by making the things mutually exclusive doesn't work. Another thing you might say is, well, maybe they didn't understand that the question was about probability. Maybe they thought it was about something else. Well, but again, we have the betting results. They're betting more money on the thing. If that isn't the way they judge probability, then, there may, then there's some other kind of irrationality that they're exhibiting, right? I mean, that, doesn't, that just pushes the problem somewhere else. But that doesn't really address the charge of irrationality, right? If you're betting more money on something that you think is less probable, that's a different kind of irrationality, right? So even if you don't think it's a question about probability, you shouldn't be betting more money on it because you're going to lose money. I mean, that's just a sure way to lose money. Okay, we can just pump you for money. If you go around betting more on conjunctions than their conjuncts, I can just pump you for money all day, okay? That's bad. So there's clearly an irrationality here. There's clearly a mistake that people are making, and you can, you can bring it out in different ways by doing different sorts of experiments. So people have tried to resist the idea that it's a mistake, either by saying they're not really hearing it as logical entailment, or they're not hearing it as probability. But when you look at these combined logical inference betting experiments, it kind of makes it pretty clear there's a mistake here. So I haven't been someone who's wanted to get into this debate about whether it's a mistake. I'm willing to concede that it's a mistake. Let's just grant that it's an error of some kind, there's a mistake. What I'm more interested in in the study of reasoning is why people make certain kinds of mistakes. Not that they do. I mean, certainly people make mistakes. This is not really a newsflash. What I think is more interesting is why do they make mistakes? Can we sort of tell a story? Can we explain why they're making a mistake? Now, and that's the way I'd like to approach this, because I think it's, there's overwhelming evidence this is a mistake of some sort. And so then the question is, okay, why? And the reason I told you about the base rate fallacy first, you might not think why, it doesn't really seem like they're connected. They are connected, it turns out. They turn out to be intimately connected. And I think there's a unified story about what could be causing mistakes in both cases. Just supposing they are both mistakes. I know the base rate fallacy is more controversial because it's more complicated. It's also not clear whether Bayes' theorem really is a binding norm in all cases. Okay, but let's just suppose it is. Let's suppose it's a mistake. 
And let's suppose this is a mistake. In this case, this is clearly a mistake. Okay, I don't think there's any way around that. And then, can we give a unified story about why they might be making a mistake? And I think the answer to that, interestingly, is yes. And this is some research I've been doing, both philosophical research and research in psychology with psychologists that I've been publishing. Let me go back before I tell you what I think is going on here, at least part of what's going on. I mean, I don't claim to give a complete explanation, but I, can t I want to say something illuminating here, and I think I can do that. Let me go back 60 years to 1952, uh, when Rudolf Carnap, who's a famous philosopher of the 20th century, famous analytic philosopher, wrote in logic and semantics and philosophy of science and lots of things. And he wrote a big book on probability called Logical Foundations of Probability, and that came out in 1950. Uh, or 1950, and in 1952, Karl Popper wrote a review of that book, which became known as the Popper-Carnap controversy. And really, there were lots of issues involved in the controversy. Popper didn't really like the book at all. <laughs> he wasn't a big fan of Carnap's book. And Carnap's project's weird. It involves trying to reduce probability to logic. Okay, that's a very controversial thing. But put that to one side. There's part of the controversy that's relevant to the story I'm going to tell. And that part is that Popper pointed out to Carnap that his book actually has two different notions of what he calls confirmation. So Carnap's book is about confirmation. Oh, what's confirmation? I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's about confirmation. It's about providing probabilistic models of what he called confirmation. And he gives an official account of confirmation. But some places in the book, he seems to have a different notion of confirmation in mind. OK, so let me just tell you what confirmation is intuitively for Carnap and, and what his theories look like. So, he gives various ideas about what confirmation is informally, but here's one account that I like that he says in the book. He says, here's the relation we're interested in. E provides some positive evidential support for H. Okay, so we were interested in when an evidential proposition provides some support for a hypothesis, and we want to give a probabilistic account of that. And Carnap did. And in the book, the official account he gives is in terms of just probability thresholds. So basically he says E confirms H, if the probability of H, given E, is greater than some threshold, like greater than a half or, or whatever, or greater than 0.9, the threshold could depend on context. That doesn't matter. So it's just a simple threshold idea. If E makes H probable enough, then E confirms H. Then E is evidence for H. Okay? Very simple idea. That's one notion. But what Popper points out is that elsewhere in the book, Carnap slides into speaking about a different notion. And that notion is a probabilistic relevance notion, okay? not a threshold notion. So the other notion would say that E confirms H if E raises the probability of H. So that is to say, if the probability of H given the truth of E is greater than the probability of H was, say, before E was learned, okay, unconditionally. So the idea is if you learn E, does that raise the probability of H? That's a different notion because it's a relevance notion. E has to be a difference maker to the probability of H. The first notion was just a threshold. You pick some threshold like a half. It's a constant. And if the probability of H given E is greater than that constant, then you have confirmation. So maybe we could fill this in with some examples. What would be an example of a hypothesis and then the evidence for that hypothesis understood in these two ways? Yeah, sure. So let's just take an example with a deck of cards, okay? Uh, here's a simple case. So I'm gonna sample a card at random from a deck, right? Standard deck. It's well shuffled, I pick a card out, okay? The hypothesis is that it's gonna be the ace of spades, okay? Let's suppose you learn that it's a black card. That raises the probability that it's the ace of spades. In fact, it doubles the probability. Probability goes from one over 52 to one over 26 because there are 26 black cards in the deck and one of them's the ace of spades. So you see that in the relevant sense, in the difference-making sense, E comes out confirming H. But in the threshold sense, 
No, the probability of H is still very low. It's only 1 over 26. No one would pick a threshold that low. That wouldn't be interesting, okay? Usually the threshold's a half or greater than half, right? Depends on what the context, but it would never be as low as 1 over 26. That's a tiny probability. So here's a great example. Here's an example where you have relevance, but you don't have threshold. So you have relevance confirmation, but no threshold confirmation. That difference is something that Carnap gets confused about in the book, and Popper calls him to task. And what's really interesting is, in this 1952 article, the example that Popper uses to illustrate this distinction is the example of a rare disease and a reliable test of that disease. He says, look, suppose you have a really rare disease, and suppose there's a reliable test, not perfectly reliable, and you get a single positive test result. Clearly, that's going to raise the probability that you have the disease, but the probability is still going to be quite low. It's just like the case with the ace of spades. Same structure. So now you realize the base rate case has the same structure as the ace of spades case. Sure, E raises the probability of age. In fact, it doubles it, but it's still very low. And the reason is because there are very few aces of spades in the population, right? The base rate of ace of spades is tiny. So you learn the thing is black. Well, that doubles the probability, but still it's tiny. It's only 1 over 26. Now with a rare disease, it could be even much tinier, okay? But the idea is the same. So Carnap was a very smart guy, and now that we're looking back on this, this seems like a silly mistake to make, almost. Um, so why do you think Carnap would have confused the thresholds case? Well, I think when you, so when you look back at the book, it's not as if he says anything sort of blatantly false about either notion. But he kind of slides between the two when he's giving different kind of accounts of different phenomena in the book without being sufficiently careful. So it's not as if, it's not as if he makes any explicitly crazy claims, but there is an ambiguity that slides in. And so what Popper's pointing out is, hey, there's an ambiguity, right, in the book. And well, look, remember with the base rate case, I said experts, epidemiologists, doctors, I mean, these are people trained in probability and statistics. Maybe it's not that surprising that Carnap would have, maybe conflate these. And you got to remember, this was many years before really probability theory had been worked out in any detail. I mean, it only been, probability theory had only been formally axiomatized 20 years earlier by Kolmogorov. So this is very new stuff. And when you got a new theory, and probability is a subtle theory, easy to screw it up. People do it still. This is why Kahneman Tversky won the Nobel Prize. Probability is hard. I mean, the bottom line is, what I would say is probabilistic reasoning is hard. Uh, and that's why you get these mistakes. Right. But what I find, so coming back to the history, right? So Popper has this story about the base, which is basically Kahneman Tversky's base rate case, or it's an example of it, to illustrate this distinction. Okay. Now, what Carnap did was, well, it, it, unfortunately, that dispute got very nasty. There's an interesting book called The Popper Carnap Controversy. You want to read about it. It, was, it? it got very nasty. And Carnap was a very shy person. He was not one who would like to get involved in these public disputes, that Popper was a very uh, aggressive person. And uh, so, unfortunately, it delayed the publication of the second edition of the book for about 10 years. Carnap was not that kind of guy. He just, that, that kind of interaction turned him off. But he eventually came out with the second edition. Unfortunately, he didn't rewrite the book. He just added a thin preface where he acknowledges this point of Carnap's, uh, of Popper's, excuse me, where he says, yeah, you're right. I should have been more careful. There's really two notions of confirmation here. And then he distinguishes. He says, there's what I'll call firmness, which is the threshold idea. And there's increase in firmness, which is the relevance idea, the difference-making idea. Okay? And he says a few things about it. Unfortunately, he never reworked it. In my PhD dissertation, I took it upon myself, and really in a lot of my research since then, it's been trying to work out what Carnap should have said about many things in light of this distinction. 
that's sort of what my research in probability largely has been about for the last 10 years, a lot of it. There's a lot of things you have to rework. <laughs> it has a lot of consequences uh, for various things you want to talk about, statistics, the paradoxes of induction, the problem of induction. There's all kinds of stuff that um, you want to rework. He didn't do that. That's what I've been doing. But what's really neat in the present context is this distinction can be really helpful. I mean, look, so we've already seen a good reason why people might screw up on the base rate case. Look, um, what's happening in the base rate case? Well, here's what's happening. We have the threshold idea is going one way, but the difference-making idea is going the other direction. Okay, and so you have like a conflict between these two kinds of confirmation. One's going one direction, one's going the other. And the difference-making idea is really strong. Okay, we're talking about a reliable test, so it's a lot of difference-making. Maybe the probability's doubled, maybe it's tripled, maybe it's tenfold, even though it still ends up small in the end. I think, and I'll say more about this in a bit, but I think people ecologically are sort of conditioned to be sensitive to these kinds of probabilistic relevance relations. If something's really highly relevant to something, that's an attention grabber. It's a difference maker. These kind of relevance relations, I think, are very important in life and just in the world. And so the fact that we might get confused when there's a really strong relevance relation and a really low base rate, and we might just sort of, in a way, just get distracted by the relevance, by the difference making, that's not that surprising, really. I mean, relevance and difference making are important, right? Yeah, there's base rates. Those need to be taken into account if we're being real careful. But suppose we're just doing a knee-jerk reaction we're probably going to go with the difference making, right? And what you'd have to do biologically, I guess, and historically, you'd have to look in the ecological niche of human beings and see whether these kinds of relevance relations tend to be correlated with the threshold idea. And if you think about it, they would be, provided that the events we're talking about aren't super improbable to begin with. And after all, events that are super improbable to begin with aren't super important, okay? So ecologically, it's not that surprising because the correlation idea and the probability idea are going to go together as long as you're talking about events with reasonable probabilities to begin with. Then if the probability's gone up tenfold, it's probably going to be above a relevant threshold. It's only in these recherche cases where you set the, the initial probability super duper low. So the thing's probably almost surely not going to happen. That's when the things come apart. Maybe ecologically, that's not that big a deal. That's a conjecture that I have. Uh, and so I think relevance relations can be good because they might be easier to track. And actually, there's some psychological evidence of that, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And if they are, and if they're usually correlated with thresholds too, then maybe it's easier just to try to track these relevance, difference-making relations. So anyway, I'll come back. There's actually evidence that that's what people are doing uh, in more recent psychology, which I'll talk about. But before I do that, I haven't said anything about Linda. What about the Linda case? What about this really nasty mistake people make? What does that have to do with this? It has everything to do with it. In a paper that I recently published with some psychologists, we point out the following. Of course, it's true that the conjunction has to be less probable than one of its conjuncts. Of course, that's just logic and very basic fundamental principles. Okay, so in other words, in terms of confirmation as firmness, the threshold idea, well, if you're going to just go according to that, then you should say that the conjunct is more probable than the conjunction. Certainly, okay, that just follows. That's just the nature of conditional probability. But what about increase in firmness? What about the difference-making idea? What about relevance? Could it be that the evidence I gave you about Linda makes more of a difference to the probability of the conjunction than it does to the probability of the conjunct? Not only could it be, it is. Okay, not only could it be, that's a theoretical fact, it's quite possible for the probability of a conjunction to be raised by a higher degree 
Because it'll, what if it starts off much lower, as conjunctions often do? It can be raised more than either of its conjuncts is raised. Of course, I mean, that stands to reason. But not only can it be, it just is in this case. It just is. And what we proved uh, in this paper, what we showed is on basically any way of measuring increase in firmness, there are many different measures of how to measure how relevant things are. Maybe you could you know, you take the difference between the conditional and the unconditional probabilities, right? Or you take a ratio. You take some kind of way of measuring that difference, how much of a difference the evidence made. There are many different measures. But it turns out there's a very robust fact here that no matter how you measure it, basically, using any measure anyone's ever talked about, it's going to turn out in this case that, in fact, the conjunction's probability is raised more than the probability of the contract. That is, the probability that she's a feminist bank teller goes up by a much bigger factor when this evidence is learned than the probability that she's a bank teller does. So we're talking about the change, the difference. The difference is bigger for the conjunction. And how do we know this? Well, we proved this theorem that for all of these measures, all you need are two very simple assumptions to hold. And it's guaranteed that you'll have this difference between the conjunction and the, and the conjunct. So here are the two, I'll tell you what the two principles are, and you can tell me whether they hold in this case. Everyone thinks they do. These are very weak assumptions. Assumption number one, learning the story I told you about Linda, learning that evidence, is not strongly positive evidence for her being a bank teller. I mean, maybe it's irrelevant, maybe it's weakly positive, but it's not strongly positive. That's assumption one. Assumption two, suppose you already know she's a bank teller. Okay, you already know that. Then you learn the evidence. Now ask yourself, how relevant, how positively relevant is it to her being a feminist? Still pretty relevant, right? The fact that she happens to be a bank teller doesn't undermine how positively relevant that evidence is to her being a feminist, right? That's the other assumption. That's it. Those two assumptions together entail that on any way of measuring difference making, the evidence makes a bigger difference to the feminist bank teller hypothesis. It's more relevant to that hypothesis than it is to the bank teller hypothesis. So, this distinction that Carnap conflated, that Popper pointed out, has everything to do, we think, with what's going on in the case. It doesn't appear to be a similar case to the base rate fallacy, but actually, when you go to a deeper level, they have this very important thing in common. They're both cases in which the relevance or difference-making relations go strongly one way, but the threshold or conditional probability relation goes the other way. The increase in firmness goes one way, the firmness goes the other, to use Carnap's terminology. So maybe it's not that surprising that people make either of these mistakes. And maybe the fact that these relevance relations are cutting the opposite direction, the opposite direction from what the correct answer would be just if you're asked about the conditional probability and not the difference making, just the final probability. Perhaps that's not surprising that you'd get that given you've got these opposite considerations, these conflicting considerations. And this is in both cases, both in the base rate case. Well, it's kind of obvious in the base rate case. This is why Popper used that example. But even in the Linda case, you've got the same thing underneath. And that's something that's really interesting, that's really not obvious. But you have to kind of think about it. In this paper, we explain how that story goes. And so I think that's really interesting. And so I think what that tells you is that relevance relations, difference-making relations, maybe those are more important. Maybe people tend to track those more intersubjectively than they track probabilities. I mean, after all, probabilities depend on base rates, prior probabilities, all these kinds of things which are in the background. Whereas difference making, not as much, not as much. I mean, if you think about the reliability of test results, those are very robust. So for instance, if you go into a store and you buy a pregnancy test, it doesn't say on the pregnancy test, this is a highly reliable test, unless you're in this population of women, or unless you're in that population of women, or unless you're in this population of women. No, it's the, there's no caveat to the base rates. Why? 
because the reliability doesn't depend on the base rates. It's an objective feature. It's a much more robust, salient feature. It's a causally robust feature of an apparatus, you see. It's the kind of thing, intuitively, that people should track. It's the kind of thing that can be intersubjectively or objectively shared. Another way of seeing this is if you look at uh, science journals and you look at the way they publish their results. Nobody ever publishes probabilities of The probability that, this, that our theory is true is such and so. No, that's crazy. What do they do? They basically publish properties of the experiment. How reliable was the experiment? That is, how relevant is the evidence that it produces? And that's basically always done in terms of how much would the probability of the hypothesis go up if you were to learn evidence generated by this experiment? It's the same thing as a pregnancy test. That's what people report, those kinds of reliabilities of experiments. They don't report probabilities, because who would know that? It depends on the prior probabilities and the base rates and all kinds of stuff that may not even be objective. Okay? So I think there's many reasons to think that this difference-making idea is more objective, more robust, more like the kind of thing we ought to track than probabilities. If that's right, then it's not at all surprising that when these, in these recherche cases where the things cut in opposite directions, which probably in real life doesn't happen that much. Maybe it happens occasionally. But in real life or ordinary situations, it's probably not that a frequent occurrence. Not that surprising that they screw it up. In a way, it's a cognitive illusion. And, you know, there are many kinds of illusions. Usually illusions are produced in situations where the systems aren't really designed to make those sorts of measurements. And so they get fooled. Okay? That's what I think is going on here. We have certain cognitive mechanisms that detect certain difference-making features in the world, probabilistic difference-making, and they get fooled in these cases. But of course, with any mechanism, you can find situations in which they get fooled, unless it's perfectly reliable. But nothing is. So that's the world we live in, right? People aren't perfectly reliable either. Now, let me just say a few things about recent research that's happened, very recently in the last few years. Some psychologists, most notably Dan Osherson at Princeton and some of his uh, students, by the way, some of his students were people that I wrote the paper on the conjunction fallacy with, they've been doing some experiments about people's judgments concerning explicitly difference-making, relevance, evidential support. Just looking at that explicitly and then seeing whether we can predict those responses with various theories. And let me tell you about one paper that came out in Cognition. It's called Comparison of Confirmation Measures. It's in the Cognition Journal from 2008. Osherson's the lead author in that, I think. And let me tell you an interesting experiment they did. So basically, I won't get into the details, but basically what they did was they gave people information about a bunch of urns. You have urns with balls in them, various distributions of colors in, of these balls in the urns. And then certain kinds of sampling experiments are going to be performed. Right? So you'll sample some sample of balls with replacement from the urn. You'll get a frequency, etc. And then you'll be asked about certain probabilities. Right? Now, even when people are told explicitly what the contents of the urns are, okay, and asked to make predictions about how probable it is that a certain colored ball will be drawn and so on, even when they're told all the probabilities. A couple of facts come out of the experiment, and those facts are that people aren't that great at actually estimating objective probabilities, even when they're given, right? And so if you ask them about the probabilities, certain conditional probabilities, they don't do very well. Their answers are not, not very accurate. But if you ask them, how much of a difference would observing this outcome make to this hypothesis about the urn? How much of a difference would it make? How relevant would it be? Would it be strongly positively relevant, strongly negatively relevant, neutral? You know, and you, they give them a scale, okay? And then, like a liquor scale, and then you ask them bunches of questions, and then you, you try to predict the results. Well, here's what's really interesting. The confirmation measures that in the literature have been defended as the normatively correct ones, and that, that's a big literature that I won't get into, but there's a big literature since, this is what Carnap didn't do, but in my dissertation I worked on this, 
And there are various arguments that I've given and other people have given that certain ways of measuring this difference making are the normatively appropriate ones. The ones, say, better grounded in logic and so on. It turns out that those measures that are sort of argued to be the, the normatively best ones are also the best at predicting these responses of all the different models we have. Now, this is still very preliminary research. This isn't a knockdown argument or anything, but it starts to show you that what we really, I think what we really need to start looking at, among other things, are these relevance relations and evidential relations and how people actually make judgments about this, if we can elicit those responses. Now, this is work that's just starting, and there are various ways to improve upon it. But when you, by doing this, you can sort of start to tease apart whether people are getting, for instance, confused between difference-making and probability, and how good are they at predicting or at sort of assessing the evidential support of the, or the relevance or the difference-making of certain observations. Turns out, it appears that they're better at that than they are at estimating probabilities. That's not that surprising, really. I mean, in a way, given the kind of results I've been talking about, you might have expected that. But the experiments that have come out seem to indicate this, that people, their responses are predicted better by normative theories of difference-making in these difference-making experiments than their estimates of probability are predicted by probability theory, even in the very same experiments, even when all the objective probabilities are given, and you know, at least they're given frequencies. So this starts to show you that even in the same context where people are not doing well at estimating probabilities, they're tracking something. And what are they tracking? To some extent, they're tracking these relevance relations. And it appears that not only are they just tracking some relevance relations, they're tracking the ones that we think are normatively most like the kind of thing Carnap was talking about, the increase in firmness thing, as opposed to some other difference-making idea. That's really neat. And so I think that kind of brings this literature full circle in an interesting way. And it points to an interesting area of research that people should work on. And in fact, I'd say something more general. You know, there are lots of concepts that you can use probability to model, right? So there's relevance, there's just probability itself, right? There's other kinds of quantities you can model using probabilities. And in epistemology, we, you know, in formal epistemology, we, we use various formal tools to model these things, including probabilities. And what would be nice is to try to do experiments about all the various concepts we think we're modeling and see how our formal models do at predicting responses. Uh, and I think that's useful not just psychologically for understanding you know, the psychology of reasoning, but I think it's also important um, prescriptively or normatively. Okay, so one of the things that uh, um, happens in this literature is the reason that Kahn and Tversky won the Nobel Prize, it wasn't merely because they gave accurate descriptions of the way people actually make responses to certain stimuli. I mean, that, that by itself wouldn't be very interesting. I mean, it might be interesting, but it wouldn't be that interesting. The reason why this experiment, especially the Linda case, is so interesting is because it's so clear that people are making what we take to be a mistake. They're violating a norm. So these experiments, they're not only, it's not as if they're just important descriptively. On the contrary, the reason they're important is because they have implications for norms we think hold in these kinds of inferences, okay? So I think what we ought to be looking at is other kinds of epistemological or normative concepts that we have in formal epistemology that we model with various tools, and we ought to try to see, well, can we do probes on those and see how people are doing? And even in experiments where maybe we suspect that there are different norms coming into conflict, say, then maybe we can try to tease those apart. And since I think that's the sort of the thing that's probably going on in a lot of these cases, that's a reason to do it. But I think also we're bound to learn more about not only how people do make inferences, but maybe better ways to model how they do and how they ought to make inferences. Now, that, that interface between the prescriptive and the descriptive, that's what I'm really interested in as a philosopher, right? I mean, so I don't, I'm not a psychologist, 
the reason I got involved in this was that Osherson was getting interested in confirmation. He had a similar idea about the conjunction fallacy. He had a similar thought. He was getting interested in it, but what he needed, it wasn't enough for him to just do experiments and pick some theory of confirmation, some theory of difference making, and show that people are doing okay with respect to that. He wanted to look in the philosophical literature and find normative arguments, arguments that these particular theories had prescriptive power, that they were sort of normatively sound. Why? Well, because, remember, one of the reasons that the original experiment was so important was because it was a mistake. But saying something's a mistake presupposes a normative background. It presupposes a normative theory, okay? So this is why psychology is so interesting. Really good psychologists are basically philosophers of mind and, and epistemologists and, right, and lots of other things because the normativity is crucial. It's part of the psychology, really. It's not, you can't just divorce it. This idea that there's some clean fact-value distinction in this literature kind of doesn't look right when you look at the way the literature goes. It looks like it's, it's a much more murky kind of holistic thing that's going on in this literature. And I think that's good, because what that means is there's a lot of work for philosophers to do here. What work can we do? Well, on the normative side, also we can help to design experiments, not descriptively necessarily, because the psychologists, that's what they do, but we can help design experiments with normative confounds in mind, not descriptive confounds, but normative confounds, things that might confound two different normative theories. Right? So that's what we do. Well, and in this case, that's what I do. And that's how I got into this, because Osherson found my dissertation, said, oh, there's norms for these things. Now I can really do experiment. And that's how it turned into a project. It wouldn't have been a full project in his mind if he didn't have the normative theory to back it up. And I, and I think that's just something very nice about psychology from a philosopher's point of view. It means we can be relevant. It means we can be relevant to science, right? I was shocked when he called me. I was like, I, my response was, you mean there are actual people making actual inferences? Why are you calling me? What do I know about that? He's like, well, that's a good question. <laughs> but he said, well, you know, because it matters what the norms are. I mean, if it's just brute description, how interesting would that have been? Not that interesting. Not even to the psychologist. And I think this is, this is often lost, maybe, in contemporary philosophy when people talk about X-Fi or other things. I mean, psychologists, empirical scientists, are steeped in the normative. That's, I think that's a crucial point. And it's often lost. And I, I just want to throw it in there because I think it's an important thing for philosophers to realize. That's great for us. We can get in there and we can do something and maybe even be relevant to designing experiments or interpreting experiments. Because remember, they always have a normative interpretive component. And I think that's where philosophy is useful. And that's where, that's where I think my research has been somewhat dovetailed with psychology, even though I don't know anything really about psychology, although I'm learning by working with these psychologists because they're great. But my work is really to clarify the normative structure in the background and then to use that to help interpret and design experiments that have normative significance. I mean, I was thrilled when I discovered this literature and found, wow, these people care about the norms. Uh, when you read the Kahn-Tversky, the fact that this is an error is as important as the data itself. Maybe, if not more important. I mean, I'm not sure you can say. They're both equally important. And I think that's great for philosophy, okay? I'm a naturalist in some sense. I think that there should be continuity between philosophy and science. And here's a great example of continuity. We're both working on stuff that really overlaps, and we can kind of help each other do better science and better, and better philosophy, I think, too. As I said, I think you, you learn when you observe people doing things, you, you think of normative possibilities, I think, that you may not have even occurred to you. And so I think it helps both sides. At least in my experience, it has. Brandon Feitelson. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, 
That's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.